0: Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. When Jesus spoke in the gospel reading, the rich man was shocked, the scripture says. And then he tried to explain himself to the disciples, and the disciples were perplexed. I wonder, whenever we read the scriptures, are there moments, at least every now and then, where our reaction is to be shocked or perplexed? Because if there's not, then we, at least according to the story of the New Testament, have probably not always heard Jesus right. And I think I have to say, as a preacher, if sometimes you don't walk away from my sermons shocked or perplexed, uh, other than just because I don't know what I'm talking about, (laughs) um, then I probably haven't done my job. Open our eyes, Lord, so that we might see, and open our ears so that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart so that we could understand, so that we would turn to you and live. Amen. We're well, reading Mark the past few weeks. We've seen the disciples constantly scrambling to gain their footing. They're constantly moving around and shifty, trying to grasp hold of this, this life that now seems so insecure to them. You remember a few weeks ago how on the road to Capernaum, the disciples were arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. And after that, in the next reading, John proudly told Jesus that they had taken care of all those who were casting out demons in Jesus' name, all those who weren't part of their group. And Jesus says these other perplexing and strange words, if your foot or hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to enter the life of the kingdom maimed than to lose out on God's life and then last week reading Mark we heard how the throngs were bringing the children to Jesus and the disciples rebuked them because this was not the way the power structures work children are not the ones who come near to the teacher the children had no right or claim on the teachers time or energies and this was unsettling and disturbing But Jesus said words that must have unnerved them even more. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And you can imagine the disciples' confusion. What? You're saying it's the powerless? You're saying it's those who have nothing? It's those who have absolutely zilch to show for themselves? It's these people who best show us about our life with God? What are you talking about? Looking back in Mark this week, I was wondering where this sort of shiftiness and scrambling started with the disciples. And I'm not sure, but I have a hunch. I believe that Jesus triggered the disciples' scrambling back in chapter 8 with these disturbing words. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. We know that the disciples didn't like this at all. I mean, who would? Because Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus spoke these terrifying words, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. The scripture says that Jesus actually turned to Peter and rebuked him. And then he calls the crowd, all those who are following along with Jesus and disciples, and he calls his disciples all together, and he has a clear word he wants to give them. And this is the word. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life, they're going to lose it. And those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the good news of the kingdom of God, they will save it. And you can imagine if you were a disciple there, how radically disorienting these words would have been. I'm not sure if they disorient us enough now. If we've been around the church, we've heard them a whole lot maybe we figured out sort of what they must mean and what they must not mean. But for the disciples, the idea that following Jesus meant unavoidable suffering. The disorientation of Jesus' insistence that they could not map out a plan for their life, which, if pursued rigorously, could be relied upon to yield success. It seems to me that Jesus' teaching was too frightening, too unstable. Surely this was not what Jesus meant. So it seems the disciples went to work from that point on. That was too shifty. That was too uncertain. Those demands, uh, that, that feels really out there. So they began to do things to figure out how they could assure that their life, their well-being, their prominence, their security could be fastened once again. How can we make sure that we're at the top of the line? How can we remove ourselves out from this disorienting place? And how can we clarify things so that we make sure that others who aren't following the regimen as we are don't get what's due to us? At every major juncture in my life as I look back over my story. Marrying Miska, deciding to have kids, wrestling with whether or not I had believed in God, coming to be the pastor at all souls. Every single time there was great fear that I now recognize. And it seems that every time I had that fear, there was absolutely no guarantee of any good outcome. I remember when Miska and I uh, broke up for the second time, this one, she had had a ring on her finger and had to hand it back to me. And, you know, I was still in seminary. And so I was very, very spiritual. And (laughs) I remember driving back from Arkansas to Texas with a ring now in my pocket that she was supposed to have on her hand. And so I did a three-day prayer fast. Now, I like my food, So you know that if I fast for three days, there's serious, serious problems. And you know what God told me in those three days? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) I fully expected that I'm going to do this, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to journal, and I'm going to do all this stuff, and God is going to come through for me, and God is going to alleviate my fears and tell me what to do. he didn't. And this is not the moment where I point to how things have not cratered for us yet. Because they may. There is no promise for any person in this room that our life will go well. And I know the stories of some of you in this room, and your life is not going well. Some of you are facing the darkest moments that you've ever known. I've been frustrated this week. I remember uh, Thursday, standing with Miska in our kitchen and saying, why does it always keep coming back to this? I'm 43 years old. I've been a pastor for 20 years. Why does it always keep coming back to what it was when I was in high school? Which is God just saying, will you give me your life? Will you give me your life? Will you trust me? And not trust me that everything is going to turn out as I hope. Just trust God. I think now we have two boys. I know a number of us here, we have kids. It raises it all again. We try to save for their college. We try to keep them away from, you know, the drug crowd. We kind of try to map out and hope we just get them to 25 alive and in one piece. (laughs) We can't control it. I can't control if my boys are going to believe in God. I can't control if they're going to die when they're 17 from a horrible moment of drunk driving. (laughs) I can't control who they're going to marry. I can't control if they're going to go to college or if it's going to be a good one or if we can afford it. But then today, Mark gives us the clincher, one who is the exact opposite of the little children approaches Jesus, it's a wealthy man. And he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. And honestly, I'm going to assume really good motives here. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I imagine at this moment, the disciples' ears perking up. I imagine Peter thinking, well, finally. yes. That's exactly what we've been trying to get out of Jesus for months now. (laughs) What do we have to do? Tell us exactly how to secure this kingdom thing. Tell me how to map out my life so that we're certain that we don't lose control, so that we're certain that we end up where we want to be. How do we assure this thing? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. In other words, are you calling me God? And if you are, do you think perhaps that might change our question? But the rich man had asked the question this way, and so Jesus gave him an answer that he was asking. Well, you know the commandments, and of course he did. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. And the rich man, and I'm going to assume here all the disciples, sighed with relief. <sighs> Finally. Isn't it interesting? I hear that, and I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> Finally. Great. It's hard, but now at least we're getting somewhere. Now we know how to earn the kingdom. Yes, of course, the rich man said. I've kept all these since I was a little kid. I have no idea what to do with this guy at this point. I just have to keep moving, I don't know. And Jesus says, well, there's actually one thing that's lacking, go and sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, and then you will have the assurance of eternal treasure. And the man went away sad Because he owned a lot. It was going to cost him a great bit to do what Jesus said. But it wasn't only the rich man. Mark tells us that the disciples were incredulous, they were undone. And Jesus told them, Let's be sure that you understand what I'm saying here. It's hard for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples despaired. What? What do you mean here? We, we can't even rely on this? Because in the world in which the disciples lived, they believed that the rich were the ones who were the closest to God. They were the ones who had obviously found God's favor. And so they were obviously guaranteed of God's mercy. And Jesus says, it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And at this point, interpreters of the Bible do all kinds of flips to try to figure out what in the world Jesus is saying. I think he's saying... A camel is really huge, and the eye of a needle is very, very small, and a camel can't get through the eye of a needle. And the disciples despair, I hope you can hear, it's not because they don't, Their life has fallen apart at this moment. Every system that, that sort of was arranged, and it wasn't necessarily that they were wealthy. Some of them had some resources and some of them hadn't. That wasn't the point. The point was they thought there was a way, there was some way that they could manage in their mind to map out the way forward. And in this moment, it was all crumbling. The foundation on which they had built their understanding of the way the world worked was crumbling. We can't even rely on this. And the disciples say exactly what was right. Well, if the rich can't even get into the kingdom, again, you know, perhaps in this room there's some animosity toward the rich. Uh, That wasn't really what the disciples felt. The disciples felt You're telling me not even the rich can get into the kingdom of God? What does it say for us? And Jesus says, Oh, well, with man, I mean, none of it's possible. Thankfully, it's not up to man. With God, all things are possible. There's a poem from Hafiz, 14th century poet from Iran, modern Iran, Persia. Here, I think he captures Jesus's heart here. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? Well, the saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God. And that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move. That the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, (laughs) I surrender, I surrender checkmate to you. Whereas my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. And I love Jesus' response to Peter. It seems to me that Jesus is just continually saying, checkmate, checkmate, and the disciples are wiggling out. I guess you can't technically do that if it's checkmate. I don't know. But here, here, the response at the end of this. So Jesus says, there's no guarantees. You can't, count, you can't count on any of the systems by which you work and manage and maneuver. And Peter began to say to him, look, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. I hear some desperation I hear confusion. I hear a little bit of anger. Are any of you angry at God today because you're saying, Hey, I followed you? And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Truly, I tell you, truly, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. He didn't rebuke Peter. He didn't soften his words either. He even said some things that, again, I don't understand. I see people who don't get all of that in this age. Jesus simply assured Peter that in the end, all would be well, that true life, the good life, with God would be his, that it would cost Peter everything, but that when the final story is told, it would be worth everything. And so we say all that to say that this week we begin to prepare for taking on our community's rule of life. And I think the lectionary gave us a gift today because this is precisely where we must begin with the conviction that our life, the good life that we long for, really does require God. And we are invited to let go of our life and to name Jesus as Lord. And our rule of life rests on the foundation of the creeds, which is the true story telling us that God is God and that we are not. And it rests on the foundation of our baptism where we are literally buried in the water. And we trust that that preacher burying us in the water has the good sense to pull us up before we stop breathing. Because this is how we enter God's world, which is through death. And we rely on God for every day of our life that follows. Because baptism is more than a one-time event. It is a way of life. It's a way of life for a people who've learned to abandon themselves to God, to cry uncle, to say, I surrender. It's a way of life for a people who've realized that we really, really, really don't have any other serious moves.